Hey y'all, just a heads up. This episode of the One of the Good Ones Green Book podcast has explicit language. I noticed that the guy was behind us and then I noticed that he was still behind us after about a mile and he was progressively getting faster. He got close to us and started honking his horn and he's like, do you niggas have a problem? I drink in American history and all its problematic glory like water. It was mine after all. My dad's grandmother embarked on the Great Migration to California after her husband was killed overseas in World War II. He died for a country that didn't think he deserved to call it home. My mom's grandfather was killed right here in America's Jim Crow South. And their tales were just the family history that had been passed down. Hi, I'm Maika Mulit. And I'm Maritza Mulit. And we are sisters and co-authors of One of the Good Ones, a young adult novel published by Inkyard Press, an imprint of Harlequin and HarperCollins. One of the Good Ones is about 18-year-old Kezi Smith who dies in police custody under very mysterious circumstances after attending a social justice rally. To commemorate Kezi's life, Happy and Jenny embark on a journey using their history buff sister's heirloom copy of the Negro Motorist Green Book. We like to think of one of the good ones as a contemporary thriller, and it'll leave you shook and wondering what it really means to be an ally. So in the first episode of our three-part miniseries, we explored the history of the Negro Motorist Green Book and how it still matters today. This time around, we thought we would get into why something like the Green Book was so vital and life-saving. Get ready for When the Sun Goes Down. There was even one town in the Midwest that had a siren that went off at 6 o'clock. That was the notification for Black people to get out of town. Remember Dr. Gretchen Soren? She's director and distinguished professor of the Cooperstown Graduate Program at SUNY Oneonta and the author of Driving While Black, African-American Travel and the Road to Civil Rights. Sheboygan, Wisconsin was a sundown town. Darien, Connecticut was a sundown town. Manitowoc, Wisconsin was a sundown town. There were, there were hundreds of sundown towns all over this country, and they, they contributed to the segregation that we see today, because many of these, Coleman, Alabama, that's another one, many of these towns do not have Black people living in them now, today, because they have this long history of being sundown towns. You could be killed. You could be lynched. You could be beaten up. These were very dangerous places to be. Jenny, Jimena, and Derek walk up to where Dwight and I stand admiring the photo of Dwight's dad. My father's gas station was one of the only stations available to black people in Edmond, while white folks could travel safely throughout the state and the entire country, really. It wasn't the same for Negroes, as we were called back then. Oklahoma, in particular, had many sundown towns, and you're standing in one of them. Derek looks down at Kezi's notepad. It's his turn to read her messages. Kezi mentioned sundown towns here, but she says we should ask someone at the museum to explain. Kezi, Dwight says. Who's that? 
the name sounds familiar. A friend, Derek says with such finality that Dwight doesn't ask any follow-up questions. There's a moment of awkward silence. Then Jimena asks, what's a sundown town? Sundown towns were places, they actually, many of them had signs that said, Negroes have to be out of town by sundown. A sundown town was a place that African-Americans could be in during the day as gardeners or chauffeurs or, you know, doing any odd jobs. They were allowed to be in the community during the day, but they had to be out of the town by sundown. They couldn't own property in the town. They couldn't live in the town. They had to be gone by sundown. And many of them had signs at the entrance and exit of the town saying, N-word, you've got to be out of the town by, by sundown. Some towns enforced their sundown rule through local laws, but also just by word of mouth about their terrible crimes, or even by unspoken tradition. Let's go back in time. Picture it. It's the early 1960s. Thurgood Marshall tells a story in his autobiography where he says he he was just standing on the train platform waiting to catch a train, and a white man came up to him. He said, nigger boy, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I'm just waiting for the train to Shreveport. And the man says to him, well, you better be on that train. It's at four o'clock because the sun has never set with a nigger in this town. And this is Thurgood Marshall, who later becomes the first black Supreme Court justice. You know, he was then a lawyer for the NAACP. And that was his experience. Vigilantes were willing to enforce keeping their towns all white. Even after serving 24 years as an associate justice on the United States Supreme Court, Marshall had this to say at a press conference discussing his retirement in 1991. You said recently, or not too long ago, that a lot of people quote Martin Luther King as saying, free at last, but we're not free. Well, I'm not free. All I know is that Years ago, when I was a youngster, a Pullman porter told me that he had been in every city in this country, he was sure, and he had never been in any city in the United States where he had to put his hand up in front of his face to find out he was a Negro. I agree with him. I agree with him. What Marshall said then stands today. Racism isn't an unfortunate relic of the past. You don't just stumble upon it if you find yourself in pockets of the South. This entire country continues to be unjust and have different rules for people depending on the color of your skin. We can get in our cars right now, head out onto the beautiful open road, blast our Green Book playlist, and visit plenty of big cities and small towns. Yet even today, there will be people we encounter who will make it their business to make us feel uncomfortable, unwanted, and unsafe. Me and my homies went on a road trip. We were stopping by like a shopping center or something like that. There was a guy that stopped kind of short in front of us and we kind of kept it moving. And as we're driving, I noticed that the guy was behind us. That's Joshua Jean-Baptiste. He's an actor, writer, and screenwriting coach who went on a road trip with four of his best friends in 2010. 
they made a stop in Independence, Missouri. Things were fine until... And then I noticed that he was still behind us after about a mile and he was progressively getting faster. He got close to us and started honking his horn and he's like, do you niggas have a problem? Josh's friends, young Black and Latinx men, were also in the car. And one of them, Frank Hernandez, decided to start recording on his cell phone. You know why. Just in case. So, yeah, he is. He is speeding right now. He is. He is right behind us. Yep, there he is. No, we don't. What's he saying? We don't have a problem. No. 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 We we stop and we have a problem. What do we do? Okay, is it this one? No, you got it. Throw one. Next one. Birdman. No, we don't have no. No, we don't. 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 We You were worried about Georgia. From Ida B. Wells, journalist and anti-lynching activist speaking in 1909 at the National Negro Conference in New York City. Various remedies have been suggested to abolish the lynching infamy, but year after year, the butchery of men, women, and children continues in spite of plea and protest. Education is suggested as a preventive, that it is as grave a crime to murder an ignorant man as it is a scholar. True, few educated men have been lynched, but the hue and cry once started stops at no bounds, as was clearly shown by the lynchings in Atlanta and in Springfield, Illinois. Agitation, though helpful, will not alone stop the crime. Year after year, statistics are published, meetings are held, resolutions are adopted, and yet, lynchings go on. Outside of just the general racism and hate that he was spewing from his mouth, his son was in his car. Not only what you're saying is ignorant and stupid, but you're perpetuating that to the next generation. Our son is gonna see that like it's an okay thing to do. It's really, really disappointing. I'm really happy that we got out safe, but I can imagine a world where it didn't happen that way. After the guys made it to their destination, they finally had time to sit and think about what had happened to them. It was scary. Of course it was. Frank talked to his fellow road tripper, Maximo Santana, about their experience. What was your least favorite thing about this trip? What I liked the least was that racist guy in Missouri. That dude, that dude could have started a lot of stuff. And if we didn't, if we didn't do what we did, things would end up differently. That dude could have started a lot of stuff. How many times have you been there, minding your own business, and then suddenly, someone reminds you about stuff? That officer who approaches you out of all the people at the pool party. That woman who grabs onto her purse tighter when you walk into an elevator. That guy demanding to know why you're napping in your college dorm's common room because he doesn't believe you go to your school. 
the man who believes he owns the law, puts it into his hands, injects it into his veins, and sees you talking on the phone as you walk home, wearing a hoodie and carrying some Skittles and Arizona iced tea. Not even in rest, when you're lying beside your beloved and asleep in the dead of night, are you free from stuff starting. Whether you're in California or Missouri, New York or Georgia, Montana or Wisconsin, sun up or sun down, we experience racism in this country. But we refuse to be stagnant. There are countless people rising up and speaking out against discrimination and oppression all around us. Black Lives Matter protests erupted across the country when George Floyd was killed in Minnesota in May 2020. Some of those cities and towns holding rallies? Vider, Texas. Corbin, Kentucky. Martinsville, Indiana. Anna, Illinois. Norman, Oklahoma. Glendale, California. Hopewell, Michigan. All former sundown towns. It's not everything. It's not atonement for all the violence that has been perpetuated against Black people over America's bloody centuries of history. But it's a tiny start. Wow, Jimena whispers. Dwight nods. Yup, imagine my dad running this store and having to close up before evening came. My mother used to get worried sick waiting for him to get in. Not only would it be unsafe for him to be caught outside at night, but any other black person who might have been looking for a place to fill up would be in grave danger too, if they happened upon here after he was gone for the day. I can't believe things really used to be like that, I say. Believe it, Dwight replies. Sometimes it feels like nothing has changed. But I guess that just means we've got to keep fighting the good fight, doesn't it? Hey. So if you've made it here, you're done with episode two and understand why sundown towns were one major reason why the Green Book was so important. We've come a long way, but we've got plenty more ways to go. Let's keep fighting the good fight together. Join us for our third and final episode where we'll be digging even deeper into the legacy of the Green Book and exploring works inspired by it, including one of the good ones. When I put out my review and it was a negative review, I titled it Green Book is a poorly titled white savior film. So that went viral. 